0: A vision without execution is just a dream. Welcome to Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. Like the show title says, Chris speaks with transformative experts and business leaders who share their successes, failures, and leadership tips that will help you transform your business into a success story. Now, here's your host, Chris Elias. Anna is the founder and CEO of a company called Formulated
1: By, and also something... We're gonna call it the Data Science Salon, which is the most diverse data science community around. Uh, She's been recognized by CNN uh, three years in a row as a tech industry leader, and I'm really happy to have you with us today, Anna. How are you? I'm
2: great. Thank you so much for having me.
1: So, um, you know, there's a part of me that itches to kind of get right into the, the the business itself. I've got so much curiosity around it, and. Um, you also have a story and, and there, is, there is a path that takes you to being recognized as a tech industry leader. Um, it's always where I like to start the show because the path is the key part of, of everything that we'll talk about. And I wondered if you would share that path with us, you know, your story, your trials, your tribulations. How does one become a tech industry leader in today's world? Sure.
2: So my, my path was definitely not an easy one. Um, my family immigrated here from Moscow, Russia in 1995 and, um, you know, pretty much I didn't, I mean, I spoke a little bit of English, but I was pretty much thrown into camps right away that summer to learn the language and kind of just integrate with the culture, um, and just go from there. Um, I, how old
1: were you at that time? I'm kind of curious.
2: I was only 10.
1: You were only 10. So but so 10, your, your language is established. Was it hard for you to learn English or did it come fairly naturally? Because your English is well, very good.
2: Thank you. Well, I went to a private English school since I was in Moscow when I was about five. I started learning English. So it kind of was always part of my life. And um, so I kind of, it was definitely not an easy path to the first year I was here. Uh, kids definitely made fun of me and my accent, but then I kind of just got through it and got past it. And, you know, here I am now.
1: Well, where um, did you live at the time? Cause you, you have kind of, I think you almost have like a Midwest accent giving that. I do that.
2: hear that sometimes, but I, my family moved to San Francisco. Okay. So that's how I really got, you know, my start in tech because that was really the main industry there at the time. And my dad bought us uh, first computer probably about a year after we moved um, to San Francisco and it was a Mac and that's how I really got started and I really loved using it and I loved learning everything on there and I actually started my first business was uh, when I was about 15 I started my friend eBay came out I started my first business uh, selling shoes and handbags on there and i found the re- you know somebody in china that was selling them in bulk i would buy them get them shipped and then i would put them on ebay and that was really kind of what how i started in uh business world so just by learning and looking at the technology that was there and taking advantage of that to make money so um so that was my first thing and that's how i saved for college um, and then after that i uh went to college and i actually dropped out of college to start My first startup, which was called Baseball Beauties. Um, And that was, again, something that was very different from anything that was out there. It was a community for female baseball fans. Um, And at the time, I was actually dating a baseball player. And I really wanted to learn about baseball. And there was really not a lot out there for women to really understand the game. So I created this community. And at the time, you got to understand, this was, gosh, this was like two thousand. right and there really wasn't any more you know online marketing classes there was no way to learn seo there was really this was all just kind of coming out content marketing was very new so i literally i learned and by doing i went to a lot of conferences i went i took some you know random classes at some colleges that were offering you know seo courses or content marketing courses and i just went out there and i asked a lot of questions, and um, I learned and I actually grew that community to half a million women, and it got acquired when I was 25 by a Japanese company that literally just approached me, and they, they said, we love what you're doing, uh, they brought me out to Tokyo, that was a really awesome experience, and I mean, I was, you know, at the time, I was just, uh, you know, pr- in my early 20s, just figuring out what I was doing. Um, and that was, you know, the, that experience really kind of helped me get to my next career path.
1: I've met a lot of young first-time tech CEOs, and there tend to be a lot of big egos that, that, that get attached with some of them. Not all of them. I've met some really good humble ones, and I always believe the humble ones are going to be a little more successful because they recognize those that can help them, I uh, had an experience, you know, not too long ago. Maybe, uh, maybe it was about ten years ago. This this young tech CEO, somebody introduced me to him and said, "Hey, you know, I, I think you could help him. I think you can mentor him a little bit." And clearly, within the first minute minute of conversation, it was it, it was impressed upon me that he knew everything and didn't need anybody's help. And you know, a year later, his his business was gone. You know, um, and so that. Sometimes you 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 have this kind of almost false success because someone invests in you early on, and the ego kind of gets in the way. Now there are others that it just look you just don't like you said you don't have that experience. Um, hiring and right people we talk that, that's that's a common thread that comes up with a lot of businesses um, is right people. When when you were um, when you were with that early company, um, I'm sorry, I, I I should have kept a note on the the name of that that first one. Um, but when you were with that first company did how much autonomy did you have for hiring and um and and what was it that you were looking for in those days versus what do you look for today
2: i mean i feel like in those days i was just looking for people that were in the same industry maybe people that were in competitor competitive companies that wanted to switch ship um i I wasn't really, now I'm looking for people that are more passionate, you know what I mean? I'm looking for people that care, that want to be, that believe in the same mission. Um, I think that's really important and that's how you really build a successful team. If you find people that really, they kind of drink your Kool-Aid, if you you would say, you know, they really, they believe in the product. Um, I didn't, you know, back then I was just looking for people that could do the job. I wasn't really thinking about, the bigger picture or the mission or really selling that that to them. Right. So I feel like that was the big disconnect for me back then in hiring versus now. um, Because now I really understand that if you really want to have, especially for the executive team, you really need to have people that really are aligned with your mission and values and can really help you get to the next level.
1: Yeah. You know, it's, 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 it's funny. Again, it's, it's the common story mission driven companies that have mission driven cultures people who are aligned to the culture every single time are going to outperform the ones that don't have don't have such things what makes you tick i think because because it's always reflective of the founder in some way what what are what are yours and thus your company's core values what what is your mission
2: so for us i mean it really for us it's really diversity it's really inclusion it's really sharing information with other people to help them solve problems. Right. So it's very different from what I've experienced in tech altogether. Uh, But I tend to hire mostly women um, and uh, people from LBGT community, you know, and people that really share those values of inclusivity and diversity. And that's really how we were able to grow and build our community um, of you know everybody that it's super inclusive you know and that's definitely not what I've experienced and not only domino but just in tech technology in general you know it was very very heavy male dominated space uh-huh. um and i think it's getting better now but throughout my whole career i've definitely experienced being pushed out being bullied you know if i didn't have the same beliefs or being made, to, you know, I was asked to hire people that I didn't believe that were the right people for the role because they fit more into the culture, you know, of the company that I was working for. Right. So yeah. and that's really hard for me because I think this person is great. But, hey, we like that person better because maybe they fit into our culture or they think they fit in better. Right. So that's definitely been a challenge for sure. My whole career. Do
1: you, do you see? I mean, obviously your company's changing that. um do you see it changing? I mean, equity, diversity, and inclusion has become um, it, it's become a thing, really, for companies in the last few years. When I really did it ever have to be a thing? I mean, shouldn't we have always been this way? Right, right. Well, course, I mean, yeah. you know, it's. I think about it because because even my family's business when I was growing up it was a very diverse organization. Uh, you know, and and I think about how many you know women and and people of all different races and types and. You know, um, you know, we had we, we had people in executive positions with with all the different orientations. And, you know, and, and I think back on it. And, and that was back in the like the 80s when when nobody would talk about that stuff. And it's like we just never really cared what somebody's sex, race, sexual choices. I, we just never cared about any of that stuff. Didn't bother us. And um, and yet today you see companies that are now going through these, you know, almost programs for it. Um, yeah. and I'm, I'm wondering yeah. how effective it is, right? I mean, if, if you've got an organization that doesn't have uh, much equity and inclusion and, and much diversity in place, can you really teach it? Can you really change it? Cause it is a cultural change that has to happen. And it, it, t- it requires people to change attitudes. That's, I think that's, that's more difficult. It's a harder thing than, than a, a training doesn't just cut it. You got to have real changes of attitudes.
2: Yeah, I, I agree with you 100, percent and it sounds like you guys were super progressive in the '80s, which is amazing. I love to hear that. But I think it really comes from the top down. It comes from the CEO. It comes from the executive management. If they're not inclusive, or that's not what they believe in, they could do whatever they want to, like give people, you know, whatever information they they want to give them. But people, aren't, it's it's not going to come through. You know, it really has to be from the upper management that they have to have. Um, you know, inclusivity there. Right. You can't just have, you know, like same kind of people in that upper management trying to hire a bunch of diverse, you know, making their workforce diverse. Right. So I feel like that really is uh, important is to diversify the upper management and really, you know, do that first and then really trickle it down because if that doesn't work otherwise, because people really, it's fake, Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's just done because that's what they're told they're supposed to do because then it doesn't look good for their stocks and things like that. So, I mean, I really, like, I really dislike that, that, yeah. and that a lot of companies in Silicon Valley are like that.
1: Yeah. It's, it's, just, it's, it's just too bad. I, you know, and, and I hear stories and it just drives me nuts, but you know, um, this culture from the top is important. There was a, there was a book and, and the author's name, I was trying to think of the author's name here and I can't remember it. The book was Change, Change the Culture, Change the Game. And one of the things that really struck me, one of the things that the author had written about that really struck me in this book is it's not even about what you say you want your culture to be. It's, it's about the behaviors you exhibit right and 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 i right. yeah and i don't know that i'll get it right but 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 he he's said if we start at the ceo ceo can say whatever the ceo wants right um at the end of the day it's the behaviors that he or she exhibits that create the experiences of the people around them and their experiences drive their beliefs so so his or her be, you know behaviors will drive his or her actions right um not what they say so you know, again, I'll hear companies start talking about diversity, equity, inclusion, and you look at that executive team and you think, well, you can talk about it all you want. (laughs) What are you going to do about it? Right? Because if you don't do something about it, you don't, if you don't start making the change, if you don't start changing the beliefs at the top, it's all lip service throughout.
2: 100%. Yeah. Yeah. So
1: so, uh, you know, so you I mean, I, I, looked at your website, um, the little bits and pieces I could, lots of diversity clearly on your team and everything. And so how has it benefited you? Tell me about, tell me about then how that's, um, leveraged into the culture that you have, which is really fantastic in a lot of ways from what I hear.
2: I mean, it's really helped just, I feel like having diversity on your team just brings more creativity, brings more ideas, brings different perspectives you know, that you wouldn't just have if you had all the same people on your team, right? So I was, I mean, I've been really lucky to hire people that really bring such different perspectives from their their side that it really grows the business. It brings new ideas and strategy and it really makes us a better, better team and better business and people love it, you know? And that's really important to be successful, right? To have, it's not just you, it's your team mm-hmm. and the culture, so And the different, you know, as I said, the the diversity of thoughts and ideas, and that's what makes it so awesome.
0: It's time to transform your business with the help of the Execution Culture, co-written by your host, Chris Elias. Make your company smarter, faster, and stronger with real-world advice on culture leadership and execution the execution culture available now on amazon is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like optimize your life your team and your organization through clarity purpose, and action. At Nexecute, we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better. Grow better. Take the next step and give us a call for a free consultation with your host, Chris Elias. 888-378-8808. That's 888-378-8808. Keep the conversation going. Follow your host on Instagram at Chris Elias Official and on Facebook and Twitter at The Chris Elias to discuss your own business transformations and get real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. See you there. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, Please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts.
1: Today, I have Dr. Wayne Visser with us. Wayne is an expert in corporate social responsibility, a prolific author with over 41 books, and a current book, Thriving, The Breakthrough Movement to Regenerate Nature, Society, and the Economy, a topic we haven't talked about yet on our show. Welcome, uh, welcome Wayne
3: Hi and thanks. Great to be with you.
1: So this this topic of, of corporate social responsibility fairly new here in the United States. Um, it's it's something that the, the companies are starting to get their arms wrapped around. We've talked sustainability for for a few years, you know, in the greater scheme scheme of things. Um, and these topics are being coming very very important to us. You are you know globally recognized as one of the the top experts in this field and. You know, I'm looking forward to our conversation to talk about what it is and what we can do about it. Before we get into that conversation, though, you know, we always start with a little bit of your story. You know, how, how does one become an expert in this particular field? And, and I think you've got a particularly good story, uh, given the different places you've lived and, and the exposure and what has brought you to this topic. So I wondered if you could share that story with our audience.
3: Sure. it's It's been a journey, really. And I must say, uh, when I set out to, to study business in Cape Town in South Africa, um, I was already somebody who spent a lot of time in nature. I was with the Boy Scouts and um, I was really interested already in uh, issues of ethics and environment and social responsibility but it was really in the air because I was doing my business degree in the lead up to the original Rio earth summit, which took place in 1992. And I got involved in a student organization called ISEC, which is an economics and commerce students organization international was actually set up after the second world war to bring uh, nations together, uh, by having an international exchange program. And, um, they started to organize uh, conferences. And so I ended up uh, representing South Africa at an international conference in Japan uh, on sustainable development. And that was uh, to be the youth voice input to the Rio Earth Summit, which uh, ended up being the largest gathering of heads of state uh, then and since. And uh, so it became part of my, um, my interest. And then I, uh, you know, I took a few uh, detours. I, I got into consulting uh, with Capgemini as a strategy analyst, but it was really impatient to, to um, tackle these issues head on and see whether business was really part of the problem or could be part of the solution. Uh, I was... Perhaps a bit ahead of the game, Uh, certainly at that stage, uh, Capgemini didn't see it as uh, strategic enough, as a big enough market. And so I left and I specialized, um, studied in Edinburgh and, uh, you know, went back and started KPMG's sustainability services in South Africa and ran that for a number of years. Um, and then just uh, continued to evolve uh, that that journey, got involved with Cambridge University with their Institute for Sustainability Leadership, where I still uh, am a fellow and run their uh, business sustainability management course. And so, you know, I ended up just making this my career. When I started out, I don't think it was a career. I don't think that option was available, but very quickly it emerged and I'm just very fortunate it's taken me to 77 countries now. And, and it really is a thriving career, but a thriving field as well, a whole profession now, and it's moving incredibly fast. It's really exciting.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it really is growing and growing fast. And I, I think our younger people today are becoming, you know, much more aware at a younger age of what's going on with our world and looking at trying to maintain the world, uh, make it a better place, if you will. Um, we talk in terms of corporate social responsibility we, and, and term you utilize quite a bit is is sustainability. How interchangeable are those terms? And I wonder if you could take a little bit of time and define them for us.
3: Yeah, they, they come from different roots. And so when you uh, say that uh, corporate social responsibility is uh, still somewhat new uh, in the U.S., I, I smile a little bit because in one sense, that's true. I mean, there are still companies that are getting to grips with it. In another sense, it goes back to the 1870s with people like Rockefeller and uh, Carnegie and so on really engaging from a philanthropic point of view and starting to figure out that, um, you know, it's, uh, it's an expectation that if you're going to be a successful business, you have to give something back. I always, kind of trick my students by asking them about a Fortune magazine survey that was done in 1948. Of course, then it was uh, executives from the United States reading Fortune magazine, and they asked whether a company should spend um, money on social responsibility, even if it didn't make them any more profits. And of course, my skeptical students all come in with very low figures on that. And in fact, the answer is 97% of companies believed in 1948 that that was a a good expectation to have of them. So, uh, you know, the social responsibility movement came out of those philanthropic groups. It's a little bit of a legacy there. And so some, uh, especially in developing countries these days, still treat it that way. But in fact, even that uh, has evolved and there is an international standard for example ISO 26000 which you know defines what it is today and there are seven core subjects and those subjects the things like human rights environment labor rights uh, um, you know ethics transparency these are virtually indistinguishable from what we would today call sustainability sure sustainability had different roots it came more uh, Um, Out of the environmental movement, uh, which we could say probably really kicked off in the 1970s, of course, going further back with uh, the great uh, parks that were established also in the uh, 1800s. But, um, you know, the United Nations really got hold of this concept and coined it in 1987, uh, sustainable development, which is development that meets the needs of the current generation without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their needs. So that's been the standard definition. Business struggled to get their heads around that until it was uh, simplified in a way. John Elkington, a good friend and colleague uh, um, in 1994, uh, coined the triple bottom line. He said, this is about social, environmental and economic performance. So people, planet, profit. And suddenly it was like popping a pill and and business sort of woke up to what this could mean.
1: Change is hard. We know even in the smallest microcosms in business, trying to create change, you know, getting people to change their habits is hard. We are a consumptive society, especially here in the U S we like our stuff, right. And change requires different thinking all the way around in the, the idea and concept of creating a, you know, change on sustainability, regenerative change, as as we've been talking about it. This has got to be a really, really difficult topic. How how do we, you know, how do we make that change happen?
3: Yeah, it's a complex problem and uh, a massive transformation that we will have to go through. And it helps to understand how complex living systems work. Uh, There's been a whole science emerging over the past few decades uh, that really has studied, especially nature, but also society, and looking at what is it that makes it thrive. And so what I've tried to do in the book Thriving is, is distill some of that science to understand how we are doing and what we need to do to make this huge change. Now, let me just preface it by saying, There are six great transitions that we have to go through as a society if we're gonna get anywhere close to sustainability uh, and hopefully onward to, to thriving. And these are changes in nature, society and the economy. In nature, we have to go from degradation of ecosystems and depletion of resources to restoration of ecosystems and renewal of resources. Uh, in society, we have to go from disparity, inequality, in other words, which has been going up all around the world, um, to a more responsible economy that is inclusive and diverse. And we have to go from disease, where in fact uh, non-communicable diseases, despite COVID and and other pandemics and so on, it's 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 things like uh, heart attacks and cancers and. Uh, uh, diabetes that are killing us more and more so we have to go from a state of disease to revitalization to really a state of health and well-being and then uh, in the economic sphere we have to look at our technology and go from disconnection because in fact there is a digital divide in the world that is amplifying inequality so not everybody has access to technology and as uh, we go through the fourth industrial revolution with all the new um you know, 5G and and artificial intelligence and big data and all of that, the gap just gets wider. So we have to go to a rewiring of technology so that everybody can benefit from it and that the technology is bringing the solutions, not causing the problems. Also, there's a disconnection here where Uh, where we start to be replaced by machines, right? Automation. So humans get disconnected and we have to look at that. We have to prepare for that and adapt. And the final piece is uh, uh, we we have to deal with disruption. The pandemic is uh, one example, but climate change is going to be a much bigger disruption. And and there are others, uh, whether it's industrial accidents or financial crises. So uh, we have to move from a state of disruption to resilience. We have to know how to minimize the risk and then to be able to survive and to bounce back when we have these big shocks to the system. It's the combination of these six transitions that will get us to a state of sustainability and thriving. And then the question is, wow, that's a big task, how do you do it? And that's where understanding the science really helps.
1: It's, you know, as I listen to you and, you know, we talk about these things, uh, you know, certainly you and I both know the naysayers out there and change becomes harder. You know, in any change, we, you know, you see people who are anti-change, anti, you know, the 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 again, I'll say the naysayers. Um, climate change is one of those. There are people who believe it and people who don't. Um, you know, look what's going on with COVID. You've got people who believe that vaccinations are important. You've got people who don't. Science is science. Yet we have this kind of structure of belief to get beyond. How do you make that happen?
3: Yeah, belief is one of the most uh, difficult things to change, right? Especially when it's in the form of ideology, uh, which it often is uh, these days. But let me say that we don't have to be convinced by the science in order for the science to work. So the science is just an understanding of how change really happens and change will always happen, whether we like it or not. Um, I was fortunate enough to live through the transition in South Africa from apartheid racist system to democracy. And, uh, what we had was 40 years of resistance by the ruling, uh, white minority government. Um, you know, violent resistance. And uh, then when the change really started to happen, when we reached what we call a tipping point, uh, it happened extremely fast. Within five years, the whole system flipped. And then you could never find anyone in South Africa anymore who had ever supported apartheid because suddenly the norm had changed. So this starts to give some clues into how complex systems change. It's not a linear change. It never is. It's not incremental. What you get is things building up in the system, pressures, uh, and then you reach uh, this, uh, this inflection point. And uh, then the acceleration happens very fast. We call that, uh, a, you know, an exponential change. Um, and it's as a result of, in, in scientific terms, what we call positive feedback loops. This means that things reinforce one another. And so, you know, there are some things happening in the world where that's, you um, happening in a in a negative way. We see on climate change some negative reinforcing loops, uh, things that are going wrong. But we also see in society some positive reinforcing loops where um, we're actually, for example, the confluence of um, societal norms which are changing. If you look at, uh, you know, the climate strike movement, if you look at the Black Lives Matter movement, you look at the Extinction Rebellion, all kinds of things are really putting pressure on current leaders and uh, current institutions that's coming together with breakthroughs in technology. You look at what's happening on renewable energy combined with batteries, combined with artificial intelligence, big data, all, you know, pushing us rapidly in a certain direction combined with again, market opportunity. The fact that, you know, there, you can become a trillion dollar company uh, by solving some of these big problems you know, combined uh, with policy change, and there are real policy reforms going on. All of these are reinforcing one another in the right direction, which means the change starts to, to, to accelerate. So that's one of the principles of system science. So that's especially the principle of um, convergence, which I've been talking about. And there are five other principles we could uh, get into a little bit.
0: It's time to transform your business with the help of The Execution Culture, co-written by your host, Chris Elias. Make your company smarter, faster, and stronger with real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. The Execution Culture, available now on Amazon. Is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like? Optimize your life, your team, and your organization through clarity, purpose, and action. At Nexecute, we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better. Grow better. Take the next step and give us a call for a free consultation with your host, Chris Elias. 888-378-8808. That's 888-378-8808. Keep the conversation going. Follow your host on Instagram at Chris Elias Official and on Facebook and Twitter at The Chris Elias to discuss your own business transformations and get real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. See you there. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, Please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts. Today
1: I have Debbie Yadagari with us. Debbie is, um, well, she's a mother of five, which in my world means she's, she's, she's busy in multiple fronts, um, started her, her professional life as an investment banking lawyer, and now has, has started an organization that is transforming HR for, for companies, especially you know, as we think about how families um, are, you know, are in this world and what people need to do. And so um, Debbie's got a great story. I, I can't wait to get started. Good morning, Debbie. How are you?
4: I'm great, Chris. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here.
1: So you are the founder and CEO of a, of a company called Village, V-I-L-L-Y-G-E, in case anybody wants to look it up. Um, it, it, I, it just one of the things that struck me, is sometimes there's a story for the, the alternate spellings. Is there a story behind the Y in Village?
4: Uh, well, Y absolutely starts for Yadigari. It stands for Yadigari. Uh, and, you know, just to go back to the basics, village.com spelled in the regular traditional way was not available. Yeah. And so, you know, like most companies it's play on words when you're trying to get your social handles and website and all of that and village with a Y. It just, it seemed to fit and we love
1: it. It's really cool. It's a great website, but um, you know, before, before we really dive into what you guys are doing and how you got there, and obviously, you know, the, the listeners are always really curious about, about your path. I mean, you started down this path of law and, and, and kind of made a major change. Um, would you share your story with us? I'd love to hear, you know, the life story as we say, it. how did you get into law? What, what, what decided you to get there and what was it that created the desire to do something different?
4: Wow. So, what made me decide to go into law? Um, So, you mentioned I'm a working mama of five. Take a step back. I'm also an only child. So, I grew up um, in a little bit of a tough situation. To summarize it, I didn't have the happiest upbringing, and I think that is absolutely what drove me to the field of law initially. Was I wanted to be a change maker from the time that I was a little girl? Fast forward through you know, many, many, many student loans, uh, which I'm sure many in the audience can relate to, I found myself uh, interested in corporate law. Uh, At the very young age of, you know, 22, when I was going off to law school, I had already majored in economics and political science. And I had my eyes set on securities law. At that time, I was still interested in changing the world, but realized I needed to pay back those student loans, finance law school and make a living. Um, And I'm happy to say that I've kept to my original values, I'm still all about getting back along with my children and my family. And I have absolutely taken my early years and my early experience in big law and investment banking to pivot to a company that's doing that now. But I started my career in big law. Um, it was great. I learned a ton. I did what a lot of corporate lawyers do and made that big jump in-house to an investment bank. Now, for lawyers, that's usually considered the holy grail because your work life goes from work working maybe twenty out of twenty four hours a day to twelve hours a day. Uh, so I absolutely uh improved my work uh life balance when I moved in-house, which is funny to think about, you know, a sixty hour work week as being an improvement, but it was. We used and to uh,
1: we used to joke about, you know, working half days, that's 12 hours.
4: Completely. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, this just a Exactly. And it was great. And so when I made this move from big law to investment banking, uh, you know, there was a lot of emphasis placed on my recruitment. Uh, it was a time when the markets were hot. Uh, my law firm was super excited about my, me going in-house, maybe, you know, becoming the client for them. The investment bank that was recruiting me threw lots of dollars at me. They paid out my, my bonus. They invested dollars in my uh, my development but it was there that I became pregnant. Uh, And it was the very start of my journey as a working parent. And the second that happened, it became all of this energy around my development. It kind of like, it was like a pin dropped. It just, the floor fell out from under me. And what I later realized was that I had a great team and well-intentioned managers But they didn't know how to support me as a working mom. And when fast forward, I ended up leaving my employer uh, six months postpartum. And when I did a little bit more digging, I learned that 41% of working parents leave their employers post baby. 33% of working dads leave their employers post baby.
1: Millennials are certainly driving a lot of this. Um, It's been a long time coming, but How are you overcoming some of the resistance with your clients to the cultural changes that are needed now that we're able to work remotely and in some of these other considerations?
4: It's all about education. That's where we uh, we provide our expertise. We are in the ear of HR leaders who sometimes don't have 100% control of the situation. You know, depending on the organization, uh, some of the cultural calls are made by the head of HR and other times they have, you know, we're providing our input to HR and HR is providing their input to the CEO. So it really depends. But what we do is empower their working parents and the managers of their working parents to exactly like you said, you know, outline the KPIs, outline the goals, do not emphasize the time in the seat, really focus on the organizational goals to measure people's success. And you can hold people accountable, but just make sure it's not accountable for those hours. And I think it's a matter of demonstration. When we provide our utilization reports and we show our our clients, the employers who we work for, you know, who we're able to assist and they're able to step back and really look at their attrition rates and be like, wow, you know, we have one client who's also an investment bank uh, and can't stray too far from my roots. And they have been so pleased with the retention of their senior female staff throughout the recession. As we know, Uh, Women have been hard hit during the pandemic and this company has not lost any of their senior female leadership. And that is just amazing for them. And so Mm -hmm. that is a company that is absolutely um, in the know. And they're able to look at the stats to be like, OK, you know, this is working. We're producing. We don't have to spend our energy elsewhere replacing employees. It's worth it to give employees what they want with resources such as Village. We're able to uh, you know, help our working parents and our working families, which, you know, is often 50 percent of any organization. It's not as if we're helping a tiny little niche within the company. It's it's a large swath of, the, of any employer's population. We're able to help everybody achieve their goals and that's what village is all about it's making it the win-win so how do we change culture we put it in we frame it in the win-win how the employer how the company is going to um, do better how they're going to produce more how they're going to reduce attrition how at the end of the year is it going to affect their bottom line if they require everybody to return to the office or if they permit flexibility Uh, and I think it's going to be a slow transition for Some, but I'm happy to say that I'm very proud of our clients, and they're moving in the perfect direction. Well, and I I think you're
1: you're touching on something that's really important for you know a a lot of listeners too. You, You know, so we have a lot of business leaders, and the first thing they're gonna they're gonna look at is is okay. So this all sounds great, but we're just you know you're just telling us to give away the show again. You know, we just have to keep giving up. We give more, give more, give more, and you know it's. It's you're not really you're not giving anything away. I to me I always think of this more investment mentality. You know, um, in the last year, I can't I can't believe how many times I've seen people just you know throwing money at the solution, right? You know, you know, we'll, we'll give the person another raise, we'll, we'll give them a bonus, this, but these 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 life issues are often way more important for people, and there are hard numbers, not soft numbers. There are hard numbers. To what these these quote unquote costs actually really generate. Um, you know, one of the statistics on your website is um, $3 million in annual savings for the average client that you guys work with. I know you're working with bigger customers, but um, could you maybe provide a little bit more of, of the hard data on how much is actually saved? What is the cost of one turnover if, if you lose a person on your team because of an issue like this?
4: Sure. Uh- The average turnover costs are anywhere between 50% to 300% of an employee's salary, depending on their level of seniority. Uh, It is more costly, the more senior the employee. And so if you have somebody who's earning $100,000 and it's going to cost you $300,000 to retain them, think about how much providing them with the support of village or offering them a little bit of flexibility is going to provide, you know, that's the equivalent of if you have to replace them, you know, hiring three people, let's say, and still getting the work of just one. Mm-hmm. And so when we calculate our, our, the ROI of village, we look at it, we look at the average birth rate within a company. We look at the average salary within a company. We calculate the average retention rate with Village versus without any family support. And then we also calculate the productivity rate. Uh, Economists have calculated that it costs 34 cents on every dollar when an employee is distracted employees have been very distracted uh, during the pandemic. And so if we can provide the supports that they are asking for and requiring right now, that can be an incredible boost to our bottom line immediately. So that is how we think about the ROI, and it is so important for leaders of all companies to think about um, you know, some of those freebies that they can give. Flexibility is such an easy one, and it comes down to what you're saying. You know, shame on them if they're not able to hold employees accountable. I think, That's what it comes down to. Too many managers are not skilled in how to set KPIs and how to backtrack and look at metrics. The only metric they've ever had is somebody, you know, in the office nine to five. I've spoken to so many employees who have talked about how much more productive they are being home because they don't, you know, in every office, there's that one person, right? Who's going to come by your office, come by your cubicle and just... Start talking. And sometimes it's like 30 minutes, 40 minutes before you know it. Then there's coffee breaks. There's lunch breaks. People are working more than ever now. But at the same time, they're balancing more than ever. So I think there's also a cultural shift um, that's happening in the workplace. But individually, we're all going through our own cultural shift also in trying to define our boundaries and what's appropriate. Mm -hmm. Is it okay to, to kick off at four? If I woke up and started working at 6am, you know, Oh no, what if somebody pings me, you know, is it going to look bad that, you know, my zoom has a tree in the background as opposed to my home office. So I think we're in addition to KPIs and trying to figure out all of that. Managers are also trying to figure out what's appropriate and what's okay. Uh, what does a work and trying to define that workday? What does the workday mean? And it would behoove organizations to take all of the training that village provides that you're providing and really absorb that in a very fast manner right now. And they're going to see an incredible impact to their bottom line going forward. They're going to attract better talents. They're going to attract, um, they're going to increase employee loyalty and with the offering of flexibility at so many shops these days. There's competition uh, for top employees and it is the employees that are absolutely holding the trump card and they're able to decide and call the shots and employers who don't get on board are going to lose out.
1: Yeah. And that's not going to change, by the way. I, you know, I, there, there are some statistics that show that, um, well, you know, a lot of people were paid to, to stay at home. They made more money staying at home. And so so there was kind of a reduction in, in available workforce. But that's mostly in the trenches. That's not at the executive level. That's not at the management level. And and whereas we will see a rebound and the cost of employment maybe go down a little bit for what I call, let's say, call frontline or first level people in organizations. The other part of it is 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 shifting at the upper and the management level. I mean you do have people aging out. you have a large workforce you know the baby boomers are, are mostly kind of moved into retirement largest group of people we've had in this country and there are there are more businesses than ever but less leadership level people available. So, and that is just not going to change. We have to find a way to, to do this. You had made a, a comment about the increased productivity and I've heard a lot of the same commentary. People feel more uh, productive. And and as kind of one economist to another, also by training, um, have you seen any statistics on the increase of productivity for people working at home versus, you know, being distracted?
4: I have, but I've seen it through the gender lens. Sure. So when we look at something like professors, which are uh, asked to publish often, we've seen that male professors without caregiving responsibilities have has been publishing at two to three times the rate as female professors with uh, home responsibilities and family care. Uh, and you know, so that's if you carry that over to the workplace. What are employers going to do to even the playing field mm-hmm. and allow all of their employees to perform to the best of their abilities? Right. And of course, you know, some of those stats came out of the pandemic when childcare was limited and the default parent typically becomes the mother. Not always, but still socially, it's more acceptable for the mom to be the, uh, the default parent. How are employers who, you know, we know that there are more female graduates coming out of universities mm-hmm. than males right there are lots of females coming up through the ranks but it's just, it's this intersection of family life and career life that oftentimes halts the career of the female and when we're already as you said you know lacking top leadership yeah. we cannot cut out you know half of our population we have to continue to think about what um, what supports we can put in place to just support the family unit as a whole, whoever the default parent happens to be? It's it's changing. Oh, there are a lot of changes. As you were saying, the baby boomer boomer baby boomers are stepping out of the generation and they have a lot of leadership experience. But what I find very interesting is they're unable to pass the buck because Mm -hmm. it's a new work world today than what they were dealing with. And while some of those lessons can absolutely be passed on together, collectively, we're kind of writing a new book for what leaders need to know and do moving forward. And, It absolutely, that book has to, um, you know, encompass care for families.
0: Thank you for joining Chris Elias for this week's edition of Transformative Experts. We hope you'll tune in again next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And catch our weekly replay on the Voice America Influencers Channel, Sundays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Have a good week.